Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Hold on to your hats today. We have a very, very important focus of the show. We're going to be talking about data, dogma, and discovery, because all three are linked together in a realm of discovery. What we want you to know today is that something has just occurred that is a perfect working example of how it is that dogma and data deal with each other in the modern world through the media and how the media, traditional media, has often distorted, is used as an instrument to attack people's professions and credibility, how it is that basic data that has been around for years and years, can be manipulated. This is about how it is that media is used to discredit people that are telling the truth to you, how media blackouts happen. I've invited Gordon Folks, who's an astrophysicist from the University of Chicago and has mostly been in the think tank world, And Don Easterbrook, who is Professor Emeritus of Geology at Western Washington University, Bellingham, who has been looking at and asking the question, what causes global climate change for 50 years? He is the author of at least 180 peer-reviewed papers and publications and has written books. He is a practical, honest, forthcoming person and a wonderful teacher We did a piece on global cooling and the food supply, which was very serious. And if you haven't heard it on its rainmaking time, you should. I've asked them both to be together because of the most recent attacks on Dr. Don Easterbrook's profession and person. And we're going to talk together about how data, dogma, and discovery works. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Gordon Folks and Don Easterbrook to its rainmaking time. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. I would like to ask Don to lay out what happened recently when you testified at the Senate Energy, Environment, and Telecommunications Committee in Olympia, Washington, about climate change, which I watched the two-hour testimony. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was honest. I thought it was highly educational and extremely instructive for everybody listening to this show to watch this. I want to hear from you directly, Don. What happened after you finished this testimony? First, to lay the groundwork, I was invited by the Washington State Senate hearing to testify on a Senate bill that had been proposed by Governor Inslee. And in that bill were five assertions that formed the basis for the bill. And my role in this hearing was to testify about the basis upon which this bill was going to be judged. Those five assertions that I addressed were, number one, that emissions of greenhouse gases from human activities is the principal cause of global warming. Two, sea level is rising at an increasing rate because of global warming. Three, the frequency of severe storms is increasing because of global warming. Four, mountain winter snowpacks and stream flows are diminishing because of global warming. And five, ocean acidification is occurring because of global warming. All of these things formed the foundation for this legislation. Therefore, what I did was to accumulate data and bring it to the hearing so that the Senate hearing committee could see for themselves the data upon which these assertions could be judged. 
So what I did was show a lot of data, the idea being that famous quote, in God we trust, all others bring data. So I took (laughs) a lot of data and presented it in a fashion which was understandable by the layman, hopefully. And almost immediately after my testimony, the chairman of the geology department at Western Washington University, Bernie Hausen, who never published a single paper on climate, he actually knows nothing about climate topics I discussed, Uh, Anyway, he issued a statement to the AP Wire Service that I was neither an expert in my field nor active in my field. And then on the following Sunday, March 31st, the 12 members of the geology department at Western Washington University, none of whom have ever published a single paper on climate, incidentally, published a vicious personal character assassination against me in the local newspaper. And how did that manifest? What does that mean? What they claimed was that my work is filled with misrepresentations, misuse of data, Every graph that I showed was flawed. None of my publications had been peer-reviewed. My evidence was not supported by any published science. My views required the existence of a broad, decades-long conspiracy, and that they decried the injection of such poor quality science into the public discourse. That was what they said about me. Was there anything else that was published? The following Sunday, I published a response to their article, That response pointed out that they had not addressed any of the issues that I had discussed at the hearing and that it was really a diatribe against me personally, that there was essentially no data that they had submitted to the paper that would be contrary to any of the data that I presented to the hearing. The net effect of all this was they had hoped to subvert my testimony by personal character assassinations without addressing any of the issues that I discussed. And this was a two-hour testimonial, which I'm telling you, I thought it was great. It was very educational. And for those of us who don't understand these distinctions about climate change and the history of climate, it's one of the best instructions that you can listen to. So everybody definitely watch his testimony. You're going to hear totally different frame of reference for what's occurring. Even the fact that you went to that the Antarctic ice sheet is not melting at all, that global warming has not been around for 15 years, that snowfall is not below normal, that four out of the five years have set records, that sea level is rising seven inches per century, not 20 feet, and that CO2 cannot possibly cause global warming. There's just a little bit of that mind-blowing stuff. I mean, most of us have ingested the complete opposite of what you're laying out. So where's the dogma and where's the data? And before we get to Gordon, one more thing. Part of your testimony is that the existing data for the last, I don't know how many years, has been changed. I want you to lay that out because it is the central premise upon which everything else is being subverted. Lay that out so we understand that really clearly. The original data shows that the 1930s were the warmest decade of the century and that the years 1934 and 1936 were the hottest uh, annual records of the century. And everyone agreed upon this, including James Hansen of NASA, until about 2000-something or other. But in 1999, NASA published that data, and it showed the 1930s were hotter than the decade of 2000 to 2010. clearly shows that. And then NASA, in 2012, changed the data. They subtracted almost a full degree from the 1930s decade and added about six-tenths of a degree to the decade of 2000-2010 to make it appear as if the latter decade was the warmest of the century. And they only did that in order to show that we're headed for doom and gloom. 
And you can go to their own website and you can check their own data because they have published the 1990 version in which James Hansen says, yes, the 1930s were the warmest of the century, and compare it to the 2012 data, and you'll see that it has been altered by that amount in order to make it appear as if the last decade has been the warmest. Now, NOAA does something a little bit different, and what they do is... And say who NOAA is for those people listening who don't know who NOAA is. Okay, sorry, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric, um, I forget the last one is... Administration. Uh, Administration, sorry, thanks, Gordon. They also make what are called adjustments to data, and they do much the same kind of thing, but they do it in a slightly different way. They assume that the original data, say in the 1930s, needs to be corrected, and they apply a correction which they derive from some modern readings which are based on rather shaky ground because the recording stations don't even meet NOAA standards. And then they apply that correction factor to suppress the data from the 1930s decade and to elevate the data for the last decade. And the result is essentially the same. That is the artificial switch, if you like, from the 1930s as the hottest decade to the last decade. And all you have to do is to look at the original data or to look at the number of records that were broken in the 1930s decade compared to the present over the last decade. The last decade, there were about 2,000 temperature records broken, daily temperature records. In the 1930s, there were 10,000. There were five times as many records broken. And they can't change that. They can fiddle with the numbers, but they can't change the records. And so that in itself proves that what they have done is is not really valid. So that's the name of the game. And in order to get to the point where they can claim that this was the hottest decade ever, they have to change the old data. Now, most of the audience listening to this may or may not know that the IPCC presentations and papers and assertions are all based on climate modeling, not on actual data. Am I correct? That's correct. And... Uh, there's a very interesting summary that was just published by Roy Spencer, who's the guy that runs the satellite data. What he found was that if he plotted all of the model data from IPCC and various other sources that predict doom and gloom and, and an accelerating rise of temperature through the end of the century, and he plotted that back to, I think, maybe 1983, something like that, Then he plotted the actual temperature, and those diverged very dramatically over the past 15 years because there has been no raise in temperature, no warming in the past 15 years. And so whereas the computer projections go shooting off into the sky, the actual temperatures have been flat to slightly cooling during that same period, which means that their models are worthless. New data just out in the last week shows very graphically how worthless their models are, and that's the only basis for the IPCC conclusions. There is no real physical basis. I want to go to one more piece before I bring in Gordon. You make the distinction between the original data and, in a sense, the altered data or the manipulated data. How does the public discern how to get to the original data other than trusting you? The easiest way to do it would be to go to a website called What's Up With That, and there's a very nice summary there of this data, and they will take you directly to the NASA site to show you the original NASA data and how it has been changed. So you can compare for yourself using the actual NASA data. Now, you can do the same thing with the NOAA data also. You can go to the source and you can compare it for yourself. 
It takes a little rooting around to dig it out, but if you go to the website, which has links, it's not all that difficult to do. How many people do you think on the planet have the original data before it was shifted? It exists still on many websites. I have it, and a lot of the scientists have it. And I suspect that if you were to look in archives in various places, you would find the original data. It's not difficult to find. But if they've changed it, wouldn't they want it dismissed from the Internet and dismissed from public access? Oh, right. You may not find it on their site. It may well be gone from the NASA site and from the NOAA site right now. But it is certainly available and not difficult to find on other websites. Okay, Gordon Folks, welcome to the show. Yeah, talk, to, talk to us about your involvement in climate, your background in astrophysics, and why you're involved in this whole discussion. Well, I got involved some years ago when George Taylor, the state climatologist in Oregon, was under heavy pressure for disagreeing with the climate clique, especially with the governor. And what happened at Oregon State University was amazing, despite thoughts of academic freedom, despite the fact that a university is supposed to be a place where all ideas can be discussed. It was under heavy pressure for what he was saying. He was eventually forced to retire, and that pretty much eliminated the one skeptic in Oregon. And I thought, gee, I'm not sure whether I agree with George or not, but something has to be done about this. I certainly agree that he should have his say in things. And the only thing I ask of other professionals is that they give me their honest opinion, and I think George is giving me an honest opinion. So like I have done many times before in the think tank world, I looked into this subject very considerably and considered various aspects of it and talked with some of my uh, colleagues in science because I realized that this had a huge political component to it. I went to the most left wing of my friends and said, what's going on? The geologist I talked to said, well, the medieval warm period was warmer than today. And the theoretical physicist said, the oceans have a lot to do with all of this. And I thought, gee, if these guys with a very known political perspective are worried about what they're hearing in the news media, then I should pay more attention to this also. So I spent a lot of time looking through it and came to realize that the entire global warming dogma was based on a very shaky foundation. Yes, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, but it is a minor greenhouse gas compared with water vapor. Water vapor rules the situation completely, and that's obvious in so many different ways. So once I had figured that out, then I started going through many of the other arguments out there. It's a very complex subject and takes you a lot of time to do it. But the other thing that I did at the same time was something that scientists find difficult to do, and that's to speak out in public. We tend to be nerds. We tend to do our own thing. We're interested in the details of the science, not in presenting it to the general public, but I tried it a little bit and found I could do it. And as a consequence now, I've talked to many different groups and gone after the university professors who have made this their livelihood, who earn their livelihood from this. And particularly in Oregon, there are many of them that get tens of millions of dollars. Well, Oregon State University gets tens of millions of dollars for this. And as a consequence, they're very happy with the climate hysteria and promote it to the extent of forcing others out like George Taylor and like Nick Trapella since that time and basically allow no diversity of opinion on campus 
which is really quite amazing because a university is supposed to be a place where you welcome everyone, you welcome ideas, you discuss them, and the best ideas rise to the top. That's not what they want with global warming because if they allow skeptics to have their say, they will lose. They lose every time. And as a consequence, they do everything they can to keep us from speaking. Isn't it more than just about making sure the skeptics lose, but it's about the suppression of the data? Climate is somewhat like a Rorschach test. You can see in it what you want to see in it. If you want to see warming, you'll see warming. If you want to see cooling, you'll see cooling. The question is, what in the balance is the climate really doing, and what do we compare this against? For instance, the Environmental Protection Agency talks about three different reasons why they think they ought to be able to regulate carbon dioxide. One is that unusual things are happening today, that the warming that we saw over the 20th century, and indeed there was a little bit of warming was unusual. Well, if you look back at the data that we have from the Greenland ice cores, you see that there have been previous warm periods that have been verified in various other ways also that were very similar to the modern warm period. And we weren't driving around in Humvees during the medieval times, during the Roman times, or during the Minoan times, and yet it was similarly warm. That says that there is nothing in terms of the warm-up that we have seen in the last hundred years that's unusual. Of course, then they go into hurricanes and various other things that are unusual. But the weather is never constant. There are always unusual events and such things as Hurricane Sandy, which really wasn't even much of a hurricane, was kind of a lucky hit on the East Coast. It wasn't unusual. And yet some scientists came out and said, while we can't attribute this to global warming, uh, it's in fact what we'd expect in a warming world sort of thing. And that's nonsense. You expect in a normal world unusual events. Second thing with EPA is that they have discovered firm evidence that carbon dioxide is responsible for this. And oh, really? There should be a hot spot in the tropical troposphere where the warming, if it's due to greenhouse gases, is greater higher up. Namely, the most warming occurs higher up. That is not observed. So there is no footprint. There is nothing that says that that warming had to be carbon dioxide. It could well have been and probably was due to solar events. The other idea is that the heat in the ocean sloshes around quite a bit. We live on a planet with vast oceans and atmosphere that are never in equilibrium. Hence, they will have peaks and valleys in the temperature. So the footprint simply doesn't exist. Indeed, the footprint that they say in their climate model should exist. Hence, that aspect of the EPA's lines of evidence is also falsified. The third thing are the climate models, and they put forth the climate models as though they are exact solutions of the basic physics. They are not that. They are very, very far from that. They are more like computer games. They're more like movies. They are more like science fiction. And if you have really good science fiction, such as the Michael Crichton science fiction, you realize that what he does is everything is as close to reality as he can make it, and then one thing isn't realistic. And as a consequence, he can come up with all sorts of Jurassic Park sorts of things. Well, the climate models are similar in that they do many interesting things that are probably correct, and then they miss certain things like the clouds or the cosmic rays or water vapor feedbacks. They get it just a little bit wrong, and as a consequence, their projections basically beyond five days, which is what the Weather Bureau can do, is all fictitious. Yet it looks very real, and we have come to like movies, we've come to like computer games, we believe that they're real, but hey, they're not real at all. As a consequence, that aspect that the models tell us what the future is going to be are absurd. And as Don mentioned, they don't match the current data, and that's even been admitted by the National Academy of Sciences. There's an article 
think in November, December of last year, Santa et al. in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that oh, went on saying, well, they'd found a fingerprint, and that so they really hadn't found a fingerprint. But the very last table in the appendix, so they didn't want anybody to see, laid it all out very clearly. The climate models show over the satellite temperature record, which is the best temperature record we've got for the globe and dates from about 1979. That shows a slight temperature increase. They then put the climate models in there, which predict twice that temperature increase. So if you're off by a factor of two, you're not even close. And most people can realize that a factor of two is a big difference. And that just simply says that these simulations aren't working. Even though they claim they're beautiful, they are not working. Well, I love to point out when I get one of these big-time scientists at the University of Washington, for instance, is that those billion-dollar climate models, which indeed they've put a vast amount of money into, don't work as well as my two-bit climate model, which says T equals a constant. T equals a constant works very nicely over the last 15 years. The climate, although it has varied up and down a little bit year to year, has been extremely constant. And this business that these expensive models can do better than the most rudimentary of all models is absurd. They just don't do it. Academic departments are not going to challenge an agenda that is giving money to the university. That's just the way that goes. So I just want to add that. The other thing... Well, Kim, I think that no one wants to knock the paradigm or the dogma that keeps him fed. No, that's what and I'm saying. That's, that's basically more general what I'm, than just science. That's uh, basically you know, what I'm saying. If it's about feeding your family, you're going to keep silent. You may say that, gee, I found these things aren't quite consistent with the global warming dogma, but I certainly believe in it. Please keep sending me money. Exactly. Sort of well, let me ask you as an astrophysicist, what about the holes in the ionosphere and your experience of when it is warming, could that have any impact on making it warmer in some areas versus other areas in general in a warming context? Well, now you have to tell me what you're talking about. The ionosphere is different from the ozone hole. I'm sorry, I meant the ozone hole. The ozone hole. The ozone hole. That really is a different scam. And I was very wrong on that initially. And that bothered me because I was talking with a neighbor here in Corbett, Oregon, who had no education. And he was saying, oh, that's a bunch of rubbish sort of thing. And I said, no. Several chemists won the Nobel Prize for this. It's well-verified science. And I was wrong there, not that they hadn't won the Nobel Prize, not that they hadn't done good work, but they got one reaction rate very considerably wrong. And as a consequence, something that looked like it had a lot to do with chlorofluorocarbons that we were emitting from use of refrigerants like Freon-12, in fact, had no significant effect on the ozone hole, particularly over the South Pole. Yet we proceeded ahead with the Montreal Protocol. We banned these things. And if you look at the ozone hole, it's still doing what it always did. And apparently man has no particular consequence on that either. So that was quite something for me to realize that somebody else using a completely different approach and who had no education spotted the fact that it was inherently a scam. And it took me some time because we tend to believe what 
other scientists tell us, particularly when the chemistry of that is not within my realm. And we did so incorrectly because it had become a politicized thing where it was being pushed forward by political types and not sufficiently verified. Another interesting thing there is James Lovelock, the famous Englishman who was talking about the Gaia thesis and very supportive of the global warming hysteria, was also at one point supportive of this co-fluorocarbon Montreal Protocol ozone hole sort of thing. He realized that there was a lot of faking of data there and backed away from that. He's in his 90s. So he's backed away also from global warming, realizing that it's much the same sort of scam where people are putting forth things to back up the politics to do particular things that they want accomplished. And you can't do science that way. Science has nothing to do with politics. It should be completely independent of politics. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut. The Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. As an astrophysicist, how much would you say is the sun's solar activity a factor in causation relative to climate over time? Well, I think it's huge. Over time, particularly if you fold Milankovitch cycles into that, it determines our interglacial switching to an ice age for 90,000 years and then coming back into an interglacial period for 10,000 years. That sort of thing is huge, and it's basically a solar effect in connection with various orbital effects. But in terms of relatively minor changes in the climate, the ice ages being the huge changes, the sun also does quite a bit, but it's difficult to pin down because Total solar irradiance doesn't vary apparently enough to produce the variations that we see. There needs to be some sort of amplification factor in there. The work of the Danish physicist Henrik Svensmark provides a cosmic ray amplification that is interesting but is not yet verified. My guess would be that the sun was substantially responsible for the warm-up in the 20th century because, in fact, uh, solar cycles ramped up during that period of time. Now they have fallen away, and as with the Maunder minimum during the 1600s and the Dalton minimum during the 1800s, 
those were cool periods, and we can expect a cool period setting in during the 21st century. Russian astrophysicist Habibulo Abduzimatov is very much of the same opinion, but I caution that if we look at the previous warm periods, they ramped up over a couple of centuries and took a couple of centuries to ramp down. It's not going to turn cold tomorrow. It may not turn cold or be noticeably cold for a number of decades because we're talking about tiny fractions of a degree and we tend to measure temperature only in integral degrees, so it's kind of hard to spot that. There is another theory out there among skeptics that is not the extraterrestrial sort of thing, the solar, but a homegrown variation due to the sloshing of the oceans, basically, that the oceans go through various phases, Pacific decadal oscillation, Atlantic oscillation, Arctic oscillation, and so on, because most of the mobile heat on this planet is held in the oceans, not in the atmosphere. So if they decide to release some of this, as they did in January, the global temperature shoots up, and then if they thereby cool off a bit on the surface, the temperature goes back down. Those sorts of internal variations are more or less the thesis of Professor Richard Lindzen at MIT and Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. And that's kind of the competing theory among skeptics. I suspect what we saw in the 20th century is a mixture of the two. The warm-up that Don mentioned in the 1930s, the Dust Bowl era, was pretty obviously a Pacific decadal oscillation to the warm phase, and we certainly saw that come back in recent times. So there is that fluctuation, but superimposed on that has been a general warming in the 20th century, and that was likely the sunspots, the solar activity. So my guess would be that it's that sort of a mix. But what determines things in science, it's not, let's say, a vote between Don and me as to what we believe and what we don't believe. It's the logic and evidence. It's what will eventually come out here. When you're on the cutting edge, you can go a number of different ways. And we are on the cutting edge when we're talking about those sorts of things. The one thing we can be pretty certain of is that carbon dioxide has little or no effect, net effect. Why? Why? Well, it's a greenhouse gas, and in a laboratory situation, it produces some scattering. I want to say that's the simplest way of looking at it, of infrared radiation. It actually absorbs it and re-emits it, but often not quickly enough, so it thermalizes on a particular layer. In other words, it impedes the flow of heat out from the surface of the planet. The problem is that it is not the main climate gas. Water vapor is the main climate gas, and as such, it's a matter of what water vapor does rather than what carbon dioxide does. So you have a little bit of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, if a little bit of water vapor comes out because it's a very similar greenhouse gas, then the net effect is zero. Climate alarmists like to say that, well, water vapor is going to help us here. We know that carbon dioxide won't do it alone, and I think everybody agrees with that, that carbon dioxide is a relatively minor effect. So they have to have a climate sensitivity such that carbon dioxide kicks off a water vapor catastrophe, basically. Well, why can't water vapor kick off its own catastrophe, and why haven't we seen that in the past? Because the Earth's climate is inherently stable, and that's what we're dealing with here. Carbon dioxide is a minor effect. Why should it be able to kick off a climate catastrophe when water vapor can't do that on its own. So carbon dioxide is just not the climate gas that it's cracked up to be. What is carbon dioxide? Carbon dioxide is enormously important to this planet and it's enormously important as the gas of life. We are carbon creatures deriving all of our carbon from atmospheric carbon dioxide. So it's enormously important in that way, just not as a climate gas. John, what would you like to add to that? Oh, let me amplify what Gordon has just said with a few numbers that most people are not aware of. And one of the reasons why CO2 is not having any major effect is that there's so little of it. 
in terms of the composition of the atmosphere, it makes up 38 one-thousandths of 1%, and the total change in the atmospheric composition of CO2 since the big emissions began into the atmosphere by humans after 1945, that total change is 8 one-thousandths of 1%, which is next to nothing. You double nothing, you still have nothing. And the other thing is that CO2 as a greenhouse gas accounts for only about 3.5% of the greenhouse warming, and water vapor accounts for about 95% of it. Well, the whole idea of the IPCC and modeling folks is that an increase in CO2, even that small, will increase the air temperature enough so that the air can hold more water vapor. It didn't say it will, but it can hold capable. That's basic physics. What they don't tell you is that in order for their climate models to work, they have to have a very large water vapor component in their models, which would mean that the water vapor has to be increasing along with CO2. And I am right now looking at a graph of the change in water vapor since 1948, and it shows it actually is decreasing, not increasing, which means that the water vapor factor in their models is totally spurious and that their models, therefore, are doomed to failure. So the numbers just don't support the models at all. In 2009, the EPA declared that carbon dioxide is a toxin. Where are you at with this? <laughs> that is such rubbish, I can't believe it. Carbon dioxide, as Gordon pointed out, is a necessary gas for life. And if it drops below a certain level, which is somewhere around 25 1,000th of 1%, then it begins to affect plant life, which would, of course, then affect all life, because ultimately it all depends on plants. And if you were to put some CO2 in two vessels and then put some plants in it and then elevate the CO2 in one of those vessels, the plant that has higher CO2 will grow faster, bigger than the other one, which doesn't have the elevated CO2. So plants love CO2. Therefore, CO2 is not a toxin. It's colorless, odorless. It doesn't hurt anything. It's necessary for life. And if it were to go too low, that would be a problem. The fact that it's going higher is not. There have been some recent calculations by Will Happer, who's a physicist at Princeton, showing that even if you double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere right now, that it would take about 12,000 years to have any noticeable effect. What effect would that have? Essentially, it would enhance plant growth is what it would do, and that would be a good thing. CO2 is a beneficial gas. It's not a toxin. I interviewed Dr. Itso back in 2009 and learned that CO2 was food for plants and was in shock when the EPA said it's a toxin. I really was in shock. I couldn't believe it. Do you agree, Don, with Gordon when he said a lot of times with climate you can see what you want to see? Do you feel that that's true? Well, you need to have a balanced picture of what factors are relevant and important and which ones are not. For example, if you were to say, well, CO2 is a greenhouse gas, and therefore we know CO2 causes global warming. Well, that's not true because it's a matter of how much and what effect it does have. So in that sense, he's correct that if you wanted to stop there, you could see what you want to in that piece of data. But if you follow through and consider the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, then you get a totally different picture. So it's important to keep your wits about you and keep a balance in mind of not only basic principles of physics, but also keep in mind things like the amounts that are going to be needed to cause any noticeable effect. 
It's a complex area, and I think we're now just beginning to see the effect of the oceans, as Gordon mentions. There's what's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. That's about a 25 to 30-year oscillation where the Pacific Ocean changes from warm mode to a cool mode without much in between. It's kind of like an on-off switch. It's either warm or it's cool, and there's not much in the transition. And that change can occur in one year. And in fact, it did occur back about 1945, and the oceans got cooler, and we had 30 years of global cooling during a time when CO2 was soaring. And then abruptly in 1977, the Pacific Ocean changed from its cool mode into its warm mode and immediately initiated a period of about 20 years of global warming from 1978 to 1998. Nobody disputes that. So there's a very good correlation, one-to-one, between what's going on in the oceans and what's going on in the atmosphere. Essentially, the oceans govern the atmosphere, not the other way around. There is also a strong solar effect, and the solar effect seems to be related to the strength of the sun's magnetic field and fluctuations of the sun's magnetic field. He mentioned the work by Danish physicist Sensmark, who has the idea that it's the variation in the sun's magnetic field, not the total solar irradiance, that is the cause of warming and cooling because it changes the amount of incoming radiation to the Earth, and that changes the amount of ionization, ions are charged particles, in the upper atmosphere, which controls condensation. In other words, it controls the amount of clouds that form. And so the idea is that as the sun's magnetic field waxes and wanes, so does global cloud cover. And if you have cloud cover, then you reflect a lot of solar radiation and cause cooling. So there is a strong correlation between the sun's magnetic field and the global climate of the Earth, and we've seen that in the Maunder Minimum, which was a a cool period back in the 1600s, as Gordon mentioned, and also the Dalton, and there have been others, and I've plotted five such periods that each time there is a correlation between what the sun is doing and what the climate is doing. So there is obviously a solar variability, which is, I think, probably the driving force of the Earth's climate through the whole magnetic variation, and that the oceans then respond to that and act as a modulator of some kind. But we need to have a lot more data, a lot more research to find these things out. Unfortunately, we're spending 3 or $4 billion a year in CO2 propaganda when we could be studying these really interesting things that will probably lead us to the answer of what climate is all about and what's causing it just wanted to clarify something about the CO2. I just want to go back for just a moment. Is it true that temperature impacts the level of CO2, not the other way around? There is really excellent research now that shows that the warming of the oceans precedes the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. In other words, the oceans have 50 times as much CO2 as the atmosphere, and if you warm the oceans, it drives CO2 into the atmosphere and raises it. And if you cool the oceans, then there is less CO2, which is emitted from the oceans, and it can take more in in the equilibrium. And so it's the ocean temperature, really, that governs the CO2, not the other way around. And there was a recent study by Helmholm in Norway that showed this very graphically. And what they did was they plotted temperatures, and then they plotted the atmospheric CO2. And they found that in every case, warming preceded the level of CO2. In other words, it's the warming that's causing the CO2 variation, not the other way around. Fascinating. One thing that might help your readers understand what Don is saying is that anybody who drinks sodas or beer recognizes that if they warm up first, the carbon dioxide in solution comes out and they go flat. 
The same effect occurs in the oceans. The ocean goes a little bit flat as it warms up. The carbon dioxide comes out of solution and you get it in the atmosphere. But the ocean has to warm first. So it's exactly the same effect there. My comment about the climate being a Rorschach test where you can see in it what you want to see in it is common every day. The other day there was a news flash from Reuters that said that Antarctica was warming up. There was a study done on the peninsula from Antarctica that goes north towards South America. had been warming up. Indeed, that's probably true. And they said it was getting unusually warm there. Well, the whole implication was that all of Antarctica was warming up. But in the same news article, just over a couple of columns, they were mentioning that the low temperature for that week in the entire world was in Vostok, Antarctica, where it was 95 below zero Fahrenheit. So this <laughs> business of Antarctica melting, well, it might be in, in one area, but it's certainly colder and getting colder in the main body of the Antarctic continent. Similarly, in the Arctic, going to the other pole, if you look at the Barents Sea north of Scandinavia, you'll see that it is notably low on sea ice, and it has been notably low for a period of time. So there's an anomaly there. Why is it is it a little bit warmer than normal? You go over to the other side of the Arctic Ocean, to the Bering Sea, and it's above normal. So what is going on? And it's obviously an ocean circulation sort of thing. So warmer water coming in from the North Atlantic due to a reversal in the circulation of the Arctic Ocean. But the propagandists will always point to the areas that are warming and not point to the compensating areas that are cooling, such that with sea ice, at least, it's well above normal for the globe as a whole. And that's why I say that it's a Rorschach test. You can see in it what you want to see in it. That's better clarified. Thank you so much for doing that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's funny how sometimes you don't take action until people have died. I remember visiting my mother in an Alzheimer's facility in Studio City. And my cousins, Carol and Dan, were there. And I had this little tape recorder with me. My dad had passed on five years before. And I started to interview my cousins, Carol and Dan, about my parents because they were very close to them and they knew them for many years, even before they were married. I want you to know that I got the funniest, most adorable stories about my mom and dad that I would have never heard otherwise. I kid you not. I found out that my dad, Buddy Greenhouse, used to invite people to massive parties, bring everybody together, and then they'd all get to the party and they go, where's Buddy? And he was not there. In other words, he would just put the whole thing together, get everybody to come, and sometimes he would not show up. Now, you may not think that's funny. You may think that's rude and all that, but I thought that was hysterical when I first heard about it. It's just not something that I would think that my dad was capable of, but apparently he was. Many of you listening to the show are going to wait until your parents and your sisters and brothers and cousins pass on before you ever capture the wonderful stories and legacy of your family. I'm making a very special service available to those of you that would like me to interview your family and capture the wonderful stories that are the gift of your family legacy. It's a really special service. It's very confidential and private and can be done in either audio or video. Don't miss the occasion to capture the living legacy of your family and the great treasures that are sitting there. I'm a miner. I know how to get to those treasures. Call me at its rainmaking time at 626-398-8652. Thank you. And back to the show. Now, Don, you talked about in your testimony of so many things in two hours, but I took tons of notes on it. You said that the Antarctic ice sheet is growing, and that data is a fact. 
that when people are saying that the polar ice caps are melting, and you said there's no polar ice caps at the North Pole, there's only ocean. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's so many articles about the polar ice caps melting. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to realize that the North Pole is situated in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. There's no continent there. And the South Pole is situated on a rather large continental land mass. And so they're very different critters. In the North Polar area, in the Arctic Ocean, there is only sea ice. There are no glaciers at the North Pole. There are no glaciers in the Arctic Ocean because it's seawater and the ice is only a couple of meters thick. So there's a very small amount of ice there. And I read not too long ago a headline that said that the Arctic ice cap is melting and it's already 40% gone. And this was by a famous propagandist who shall remain nameless, so you can guess who it might be. And I said, wait a minute, the Arctic ice cap is 40% gone. There isn't any ice cap at all in the Arctic. So that's total nonsense. But to get back to the Antarctic situation, the Antarctic ice sheet is 15,000 feet thick. It's a huge mass. It covers an entire continent, and it is the single largest mass of fresh water anywhere on the Earth. Some people have estimated that about 95% of the water on the Earth is tied up in the Antarctic ice cap. And so the question is then, well, is it melting? If you realize that the average annual temperature in Antarctica is minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit, 58 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, and it gets down well over minus 100 degrees at the South Pole, and we have records of that, then you realize that in order to get ice to melt, you'd have to warm it from minus 58 to 32 degrees. And that's about 90 degrees. So you're going to have to warm Antarctica 100 degrees to get any significant melting. And that's just not going to happen. But then you say, well, what's the reality of the situation? There are records of the temperature at the South Pole Station and also at Vostok, which is a Russian station not too far away. And those records go back to 1958, and they show there's been no warming whatsoever on the main ice sheet in the Antarctic. So where are all these warming Antarctic stories coming from? Well, they're coming from a place called the West Antarctic Peninsula, which is a little thumb that sticks out on the side of the Antarctic continent, and it's surrounded by ocean water. And the ocean water has warmed somewhat, and so that warmer ocean water has caused some melting of ice shelves, and it may be actually causing some melting of glaciers there. But that's a very, very tiny fraction of the total ice sheet and is totally disconnected from the main Antarctic ice sheet. And then if you start looking at things that have been going on in historic time in Antarctica, you realize that the Antarctic ice sheet is growing. It's not melting. And so when you get these dire predictions of 20 feet of sea level rise as the Antarctic ice sheet melts, it's not melting, it's growing, and therefore you're not going to have these catastrophic sea level rises because there's no other source of significant water. You could say, well, what about Greenland? Well, Greenland's not at the North Pole, it's out in the North Atlantic, and it has an ice cap on it that's about 10,000 feet thick. But the temperatures in Greenland wax and wane exactly the same as the global temperatures. For example, you'll not hear, but this is a proven fact by data, that the 1930s in Greenland were actually warmer than temperatures in the last decade in Greenland. So this is not unusual. It happens all the time. It's just part of the natural variation. The glaciers in Greenland wax and wane according to global temperature. And we've had some global warming from 1978 to 1998. And so, yeah, there has been some melting, but not as warm as it was in the 1930s. As Gordon and I have both been pointing out, you have to look at things in the proper context of what's going on in order to sort these things out. 
This really reminds me of touching the elephant. People are closing their eyes. They're touching the elephant. They get one little part and they say, this is the elephant. And all they have is their part. And then when you open your eyes, you see the whole elephant. Well, the question is, do people want to see the whole elephant called climate? Do they really want to get to know what the whole elephant is and how it's worked? But many people that are environmental zealots, and I used to be one of them, I believed everything I heard from the powers that be as being a fact. Until I started to open my eyes, take my focus off the one area they were promoting, and really look at the whole elephant called climate, I really couldn't let go of my own indoctrination. And it took until 2009 to be willing willing to examine the elephant, not from the piece I was being given by the media and books and propaganda, but by looking at the science. Fascinating. Fascinating. I've gone through my own metamorphosis in this. You say the number of U.S. hurricanes have decreased 1851 to 2010. The global hurricane frequency has declined since 1978. The number of tornadoes has decreased since the 1970s. And global precipitation has increased since 1950. And you also say that sea levels are rising the thickness of our fingernails. The past century, about seven inches. This is totally counter to everything we're being told, isn't it? Surprise, surprise. Yes, indeed. And just to comment on sea levels, the last thing you mentioned here is that there are various estimates for the rise of sea level. And sea level has been rising at a relatively constant rate over the past century, varying between about one and three millimeters. A millimeter is about the thickness of your fingernail. And the overall rate, if you take the total rise of sea level from 1900 to 2000, it's seven inches. And so you're not even going to notice it. You'd barely get your feet wet. And yet there are a number of people, including James Hansen, who are claiming that there's going to be a 20-foot rise of sea level by the end of the century. And in fact, there was a prediction that sea level is going to raise 20 feet by 2020. This was the prediction made in 2000. New York Harbor would be flooded. And so we're halfway there. So the sea level in New York should be 10 feet higher now, according to their prediction. And of course, that didn't happen. But the interesting thing is to look at the rates and what is possible. The rates, generally speaking, and especially in the area of the Pacific Northwest, are about seven inches per century. And if you project that out into the next century, you know, it's not a problem at all. The IPCC has made projections that vary anywhere from about three feet to 20 feet. And again, there's quite a bit of variation there. But none of those are possible. And if you look at what happened at the end of the last ice age, during the last ice age, vast areas of the northern hemisphere and land were covered with huge ice sheets that were 10,000 feet thick. And those ice sheets melted very rapidly about 10,000 years ago. The oceans then rose rapidly during the melting of these huge glaciers by a temperature change that was 20 times greater than temperature warming that we've had in the last 20 years. And the maximum rate of rise was about three feet a century with all those glaciers melting. Well, where are you going to get enough water melting to raise sea level anywhere from three to 20 feet? The only source is the Antarctic ice sheet, which we already know is not melting. So where is this water going to come from? And the answer is, it's not. To show you how bad the propaganda is, there is what's called a poster child of sea level rise in the Maldives, which are a series of atolls in the Indian Ocean off the coast of India. 
that have been used as an example of what's going to happen to a total culture that's going to be drowned and their homeland is going to be underwater. A sea level expert, uh, Nicholas Mortner from Sweden. By the way, I interviewed him. Oh, yeah, marvelous guy, good friend of mine, probably the world's leading expert on sea level. He went to the Maldives and he looked at various kinds of evidence of sea level. What he found was the sea level in 1979 was actually about a meter higher than it is right now. In other words, sea level has actually dropped in the Maldives. And you will see probably on TV in the next week programs interviewing the ex-president of the Maldives and perhaps even the current one who are claiming that they need vast amounts of money to prevent their whole culture from being extinguished by rising sea level. And it isn't happening. So the whole sea level thing is also a big scam. There will be minor sea level rise, that's true. But we can expect to find less than a foot of sea level rise by the end of the century, and that's not going to be a problem to anybody. You also say that the Maldives are emerging from the ocean, which is distinct from saying that they're drowning. That's right. It's just the opposite. In other words, they are not being submerged. They are emerging from the ocean. The reasons for that are very complex. It has to do with ocean water temperature and currents and distribution of currents and things like that. Because sea level is not a universal level everywhere on the Earth. There are places where there are little higher areas and lower areas. They're brought about by variations in temperature and currents. And so what's happening in the Maldives is that apparently the ocean waters are receding in the Maldives. They're not being submerged. And the same is true on islands in the Pacific Ocean. We read every day about some atolls in the Pacific that are fearful of being submerged and being drowned. And Nicholas Murner also looked at those islands and found from tide gauge records measuring the level of the sea that there has been no change. They get occasionally big storms that cause a lot of erosion, but that's not sea level rise. So the whole idea of a drowning of coastlines by rising sea level is a total hoax. You also talk about polar bears in your testimony. And I interviewed Mitch Taylor about his work with polar bears. But what is the condition right now? You're saying that the polar bears are not in trouble, that they were at 5,000 and now they've grown to 25,000 in the Arctic Sea. Is that right? Those are numbers that I have read, and those are studies that were made by various governmental agencies who have ways of counting populations. And so there seems to be no doubt because the numbers are so different. There are five times as many polar bears now as there were 50 years ago, something like that. The other thing to realize is that we know from the Greenland ice core data where we can recalculate the temperatures for the past 10,000 years based on oxygen isotopes that are preserved in the ice. We know that for the past 10,000 years, almost all of it was warmer than it is today, which means that the polar bears survived 10,000 years of climate warmer than today, and they survived just fine. So the combination of the rise in the population of polar bears and the fact they survived 10,000 years of warmer climate than today means that they're not in any particular trouble. It's really stunning. When you look at the distinction between the data and the dogma, you really have a profound epiphany of discoveries, don't you? Right. And I have always said, and I'm sure Gordon would agree, uh, that data speaks far louder than words. In other words, it doesn't matter what I believe or anybody believes. Look at the data, and the data will speak for itself in, in ways that are far louder than, than anybody's views. Richard Feynman, the famous physicist and Nobel laureate from Caltech, pointed out that data is supreme over theory, that if you have a theory, no matter how beautiful it is, 
if it doesn't fit the data, it's gone, and you need to abandon it and come up with something better. And we are really at that point with this global warming carbon dioxide paradigm. Yes, the planet's warm. Carbon dioxide is not guilty, and they need to get off of that and get on to looking at the real controversy is between solar effects and internal variation due to the changing ocean patterns. And that's what needs to be addressed. Now, Don, when you and I did that segment a couple of years ago on global cooling and the food supply, I learned a lot from you doing that segment before, during, and after. And I was wondering, you did speak in your testimony that people will hear that Europe is having the coldest winter in the last 100 years. Moscow has been buried under six feet of snow, Central Europe as well, and it's been the bitterest winter in the last 100 years, England in the last 50 years. Do you still have a concern about cooling, or where do you think it's all going? Yes, cooling is way more dangerous than global warming because cooling kills a lot more people than warming ever would. Just a little background here. When I was doing my initial research on the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the changes in the ocean water temperature that's driving climate, I was able to correlate the changes in the seawater temperature with glacial fluctuations. And I thought, ah, okay, I get it now. And so 1998 was one of the warmer years of the century, probably about third or so, something like that, maybe second behind the 1930s. At that time, we had just had a very warm year. This was in 1998. And in 1999, I suddenly put together the correlation between what's going on with the oceans and the glacial fluctuations and the global climate. And I said, aha. So now all we have to do is look back in time and see what kind of a pattern this makes. So I looked at the pattern for the whole century, and sure enough, every time it's warm, then we have warm ocean water. The PDO is warm. What's PDO and, mean? Oh, that's the Pacific Dectal Oscillation. That's the swing back and forth from cool mode to warm mode in the Pacific Ocean. Okay. And in a nutshell, the period from about 1880 to 1915 was a cool period. From 1915 to 1945 was a warm period. 1945-1977 was a cool period. 78 to 98 was a warm period. So we've had these fluctuations back and forth. And if you match up the Pacific Decadal Oscillation temperatures with those climate changes, they match perfectly, 100%. They're just right on target. If you plot CO2 against those, there's no correlation whatsoever. In fact, we had 30 years of global cooling when CO2 was warming. The hottest period from 1915 to 1945 occurred before the CO2 increase, so we had an even warmer period without any CO2 within this century. So at any rate, I looked at the pattern, and then I calculated oxygen isotope temperatures from the Greenland ice sheet back 500 years, back to 1480. And what I found was there were 20 such periods that lasted about 25 to 30 years in the last 500 years. I said, there is a reoccurring pattern with remarkable regularity. And if that continues, then the period from about 2000 to the next 30 years should be cooler. And I went on a limb, and I was probably the first person to predict that the climate was going to stop warming and begin cooling. Everybody thought I was crazy because we just had the warmest year in quite some time. And it's happening. So far, so good. In other words, if the climate continues to cool as it has, it would have been fairly flat, but slight cooling. The trend is down since the last 15 years. And so it looks like that prediction that I made back in the year 1999 is actually happening. So, yes, I still believe in global cooling. I think it's going to continue to cool. And I think that's going to be a bigger problem than worrying because it does a number of things. 
First of all, it reduces food supply. Secondly, it increases the per capita use of energy in order to keep warm. And the ace in this whole deck of cards is that global population has been doubling every 38 years. So 40 years from now, by the year 2050, the Earth's population is going to be substantially greater than it is now. And demographers argue about how much more, how much it's going to increase. But if we just use the past century, there may well be twice as many people in the next 40 years as there are right now who are going to be demanding energy and food. And so if the climate is colder during that time and there's less food and there's greater demand for energy, that's a real problem that we should begin to prepare for because it's going to happen. And when you talk about global cooling, are you talking about the return of a little ice age? What context are you speaking of, just so that we have some better understanding about what that means? We can look back in time to get some models of, of what might be likely. And the model that most people look at is called the Maunder Minimum. That was a solar minimum. And the coolest part of that, or one of the cooler parts, in the 1600s, about 1650 to 1700, there were no sunspots, and it was significantly colder so that about a third of the population of Europe died of famine and disease, a terrible time. And then 200 years later, about 1800, we had another of those, not quite as bad as the one in the 1600s, but still significantly cooler. It's what got Napoleon trapped in Russia and lost his whole army. And then there was another one in 1880 to 1915. So these things have been occurring sporadically, but with a regularity, and they can be correlated with cycles of the sun. There's about a, roughly a 200-year cycle, and there's a 100-year cycle, and a bunch of others. But 1600, 1800, 2000, we're right on that cycle, too. The net result of all of this is that we ought to be spending money now planning ahead and preparing for a increase in population and decreased food supply and increase in energy demands, and we're not doing that. It's very disconcerting. I remember the segment with you. The biggest concern I had when we finished that segment was we have populations around the world that are worried about warming and not preparing for the coming cooling time. They're not getting the results of the actual temperatures where it is cooling around the world, like you were talking about in Central Europe and in England. They're not getting the correct data. And so we have populations that are preparing for one thing. And in fact, the opposite is happening. It's scary. In England, the English Weather Bureau, for lack of a better term, was predicting that the next generation would not know what snow was because snow was going to become a thing of the past with the global warming that's going on. Well, for the last five winters in England have been just bitter, and they had cut back on their snow removal equipment and things like that, so they were in bad shape in that respect. And this year, it's the coldest, snowiest winter in about 50 years, something like that. And I was there, actually. I was there in January, and uh, a few weeks before, Heathrow was snowed in for three days, and <laughs> then I right. was so in... Uh, you, yeah, personal <laughs> experience, you, you've, seen that, you've seen that for yourself. Well, the interesting statistic that I'm leading up to is that there have been something like 5,000 deaths because of the cold, attributable to the cold in England this winter, which is way more than could be attributed to any scenario about global warming. In other words, cold kills more people than warming. And all you have to do is look at the contrast between the medieval warm period, which was about 900 AD to about 1300 AD. And during that time was when the population of Europe was flourishing. That's when many of the cathedrals and the magnificent architectural things were being done in Europe. And then abruptly, after about 1300, uh, the Little Ice Age hit, and there were year after year of 
bad weather, cold, snowy summers, and really bad harvests, it killed about a third of the population of Europe and was a great disaster. In other words, the cold Little Ice Age killed a third of the population, not directly, but was responsible in many ways. And the medieval warm period, which was actually warmer than it is today, was the time when populations were flourishing. So there's the contrast between global warming and global cooling side by side historically. Do you accept that the heat wave index and the drought index are accurate? I have no personal knowledge of that data. I have the data, and I've looked at it. And Who it records be- that data, Don? Noah. So Noah records the heat wave and the drought indexes. I think that's correct. I'm looking at some charts that I have here to see if I can see the source of the data on them. and Probably the NCDC. National Climatic Data Center. Okay. Which is NOAA. Okay. Right. So those are essentially official government records of one agency or another. Do you have the earliest records of their recordings of the heat wave and drought index? I have data going back to 1890. Fantastic. What it shows is that the decade of the 1930s is about five times as great as it is in the past decade for a number of heat records for drought indexes and annual heat wave index, about five times what they are in the last decade. Interesting. Very interesting. You see, they they can change the data. They can fidget with the actual temperature data by making what they call adjustments. In other words, making it seem cooler than it really was. But they can't change the actual heat records. Right. And so those give a complete lie to the idea that last decade was warmer than the 1930s decade because the heat wave index records are all five times as warm, five times greater, whatever the measuring stick is, for the 1930s decade than for their last decade. Gordon, folks, what did you do when the media and the university went after Don after his two-hour testimony? I had quite a discussion with a couple of the professors at Western Washington University uh, in the comment section of their op-ed where they actually came in and were trying to defend it. So uh, I thought, gee, that's kind of neat. Let's see where these guys are coming from and let's talk about the data and the models and so on. And they wouldn't do it. I said, well, okay, let's set up a seminar where we discuss this in public so that your students can see whether you understand it or not. And, of course, they backed away very quickly over that and said they didn't want to do it. But their primary argument was one of consensus. In other words, they were looking at what direction the wind was blowing and realized that if they said these particular things about global warming, they would find mostly agreement, at least within their own circles. But that is the lowest form of science that you can possibly do. And for geologists to argue that consensus rules the day in science is quite absurd. If you look at various events in the history of geology, you realize that the consensus was very notably wrong amongst geologists, the most famous of which would be uh, Harlan Bretz out of the uh, Pacific Northwest, who hypothesized back 100 years ago or so that the uh, geology of eastern Washington was caused by a catastrophic event of an ice age lake in Montana giving way and flooding most of eastern Washington. He was laughed at. He was 
foot down. He was not the expert that all of the other geologists were at the time. So he went to school, got himself a PhD in geology, became a famous professor at my school at the University of Chicago, and uh, eventually prevailed. So indeed, the consensus there did not prevail. And there are other examples. Probably Don can give more of them, but continental drift was something, uh, plate tectonics was something that uh, geologists uh, um, fought for the longest time and then had to give in to the best logic and evidence. In my field, in physics, uh, uh, one only has to recall a little Jewish man in 1905 who came up with ideas that were uh, basically took apart classical physics, and of course the consensus was that classical physics was the end-all, and in science that all they needed to do was mop up some of the details, and they understood everything. But of course, Albert Einstein showed things uh, to be much different. Uh, the uh, folks at Western Washington University and Don's department should understand that consensus is not the way we do things in science, nor is authority. We don't go to the greatest people out there and ask them what they believe. You can do that. They're more often right than the consensus. But in the end, it comes down to simply logic and evidence. Authority, particularly authority of the societies like the National Academy of Sciences, don't hold much weight. And certainly science is not political in the sense that we decide what is right by taking a vote. So the folks in his department were pretty primitive in their understanding of this topic, which made it easy for me to come in and say, hey, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Let's have a seminar and discuss this. And of course, then it was fun to see them back out as quickly as they could, saying, well, we really don't understand this very much. Yeah, but the problem, Gordon, is that disinformation and attacks on his person and his career and his credibility have already been released from the AP, and that's the weaponry used to discredit people. So the problem now is that all this is already out there. It's like impugning somebody's name. It's already a done deal, isn't it? Not really, in that they want us to cower. They call us names. They say we're incompetent. I think the Western Washington University folks were saying that we were cranks. Well, we're pretty used to that, and we don't cower. We keep challenging them, saying, okay, if we are cranks, then it should be easy to put us down. Just come up with the logic and evidence that we're wrong. And, of course, that's when they back out. We don't back out. So people out there are pretty savvy to the way that the politics transpires with this, that we are attacked and simply stand our ground and can come back with the science, not with the character assassinations. So I think we win the argument even on that level. I want to talk for just a moment about peer review, Don, and I'd like you to chime in on this. I did a piece with Gavin Menzies, who wrote 1421, and Timothy Ball, who has been attacked for his view on climate, all about the inner workings of peer review. And one of the things that you had commented on in the two-hour testimony, one of the people kept asking you, particularly at the end, have you ever written anything that's been peer-reviewed? You know, and you have maybe, what, 180 papers? And at the same time, I thought it was very neat because you had talked a little bit earlier in the testimony about how many times people with opposing views – or evidence of something that's being advocated, the editorial boards for peer review won't even allow a paper to come in. Can you explain that? Right. I think it's a mindset that certainly was evident when Gordon challenged the geology faculty at Western to a debate. And one of the responses from David Hirsch, who is a metamorphic petrologist, knows nothing about climate, says, this is a quote, I don't want the media to present both sides of an issue. 
the problem is it's not his science. He didn't claim to be an expert in climate science, yet he was criticizing me, and it was not responding to any of the issues. But as far as peer review is concerned, I can tell you a personal story. A number of years ago, I was involved with a special seminar at the Geological Society of America National Meeting, and I brought in people to discuss both sides of the issue of climate change, CO2, that sort of thing. And afterwards, the Geological Society of America, GSA for short, invited me to put together a special volume, a symposium volume that they would publish. I said, okay, I can do that. So I spent about a year and a half. I gathered about a dozen authors of various papers on the various topics having to do with climate. And at each stage, I had it peer-reviewed by global experts in their particular field submitted occasional drafts to GSA so they could see what was happening. And then everything was finished, got all the editing done, got all the peer review done, put the volume together, sent it to GSA for publication. And the editor suddenly woke up and said, oh, we can't publish this. It's not according to the consensus. And I said, what do you mean? What's wrong with the data? This is about data, not about consensus. And they absolutely refused, after all of that work and all that time, and by their invitation, to publish it because it was not consistent with what they considered to be the consensus. So that's the kind of thing that's going on. There was another case where I was involved with a seminar at the American Geophysical Group in San Francisco. There was an annual meeting, and there was a seminar prepared by others on various aspects of global warming, and I was one of the invited speakers. And at the very last minute, it was canceled by the governing board of the AGI, again, because they didn't want these views to be heard by other people. You see this over and over and over again, and I've known people who've submitted abstracts and papers to various journals, Science and Nature being a couple of others, and had them returned without even being sent out for review because they weren't interested in publishing anything that wasn't according to the consensus view. So that's the kind of mindset that's going on out there. It's suppress anything that's contrary to CO2 and promote anything that isn't. And so there has sprung up now what various people have called PAL review instead of peer review. If you're a pro-CO2 person, you submit a paper for review to uh, a couple of your PALs to review whose views you know are the same as yours, and it gets approved. In the process, they have also stacked editorial boards with people of their own view who will reject out of hand anything that's not favorable to CO2. And the net effect is they have totally destroyed the validity of the peer review process. Most of the real peer review now occurs after the publication on the Internet by people who see it for the first time after it's published and then give it a review and and what's wrong with it. And Gordon can tell you some stories about what's going on at Oregon State University where that has happened. And papers that never should have been published were published and then were just shredded by scientists in the field after publication. So it's a real problem. I am sure it's going on in in all kinds of areas beyond climate, don't you? I suspect so. I hesitate to get involved in politics. I hate politics. No, but I'm not so much trying to pin you on taking a position per se on anything. What I'm saying is my gut feeling is that this happening is not just happening in the area of climate. It's probably anything where there is a majority type of knowledge or type of information that's being touted that whoever's running things wants to be said and known. And if anything that's different than that is trying to get through, I'm sure it's not just happening with climate is my main point. I think that that is definitely true. And that the whole idea of climate change, if you look deep, deep down at what's driving it, you need look no 
further than money and power. That's what's driving it, I think, I believe. Science is supposed to be about truth and data and is now being replaced by dogma, which relates to money and power. That's a sad thing. And it has really, I think, given science as, as a whole of a black eye. I want to, first of all, thank you both for joining me on its rainmaking time. And I'd like to know if you have any closing comments, starting with Gordon Folks. Climate is a very interesting subject. The more people learn about it, the more they will realize it's very complex and very interesting. For instance, with Antarctica, the elephant seals have disappeared. Why have they disappeared? Well, climate change got them. What's the climate change? Antarctica, in the area where they used to exist, has cooled off very substantially. So, yes, climate change is very real and has been very destructive there. At Vostok, Antarctica, the coldest place on Earth, there is the largest freshwater lake on Earth also beneath the ice cap. Why is that melting? Well, probably geothermal heat, not heat out of the atmosphere at all, and the enormous pressure of 11,000 feet of ice. So that's very interesting, and Russian scientists just this last year broke through the ice into that lake to see what it was all about. Going up to the Greenland ice cap, that is breaking off into the North Atlantic, cubic kilometers of ice per year. Certainly back 100 years ago, there was a ship, I think it was RMS Titanic, that reported a similar sort of thing in terms of the glacier disintegrating. But even if you look at the numbers there, the glacier would take 10,000 years to disintegrate, even if the net numbers coming out of the worst of the alarmists are true. The glacier will last 10,000 years. We'll be in an ice age within 1,000 years, which is something you didn't cover here. You and Don were talking more about these little variations during this Holocene climate optimum, which are relatively minor compared to what we face within probably the next 1,000 years. That's something that people should be thinking about. I don't want to start up another controversy of global cooling because these things need to be handled in a rational fashion, and we're not going to cool off over night. But these things have to be considered, and they make the topic extremely interesting. And that's an advertisement for people to look into it to learn something about it. Where do people get a hold of you and read more about you, Gordon? You can find me on icecap.us occasionally. You can reach me at gordonfolks at hotmail.com. I don't have my own website. I've written a number of op-eds in the Oregonian. I'm out there active in many ways. You can also reach me through Don because Don and I keep in touch. And I keep in touch with many other geologists and physicists and others who are interested in this topic and have figured out the scam. Don, is there any closing remarks you'd like to make? I present a lot of papers, and I have speaking engagements essentially all over the world, and I always end each of my talks with a thought that comes from Patricia Wentworth, who was an author in 1949. So this is a quote of her, just not originally mine, and it is that dogma is an impediment to the free exercise of thought. It paralyzes the intelligence. Conclusions based upon preconceived ideas are valueless. It is only the open mind that really thinks. That's how I always end my talks. That's beautiful. And where do people get a hold of you, Don? The easiest way to do it is just to Google or Bing Don Easterbrook, and uh, the first thing that will pop up will be my website. If you go to my website, you'll find a lot of information. Also, how to contact me. You'll find my credentials, probably everything, more than you want to know about me, uh, in fact. And that's the easiest way to do it. Gentlemen, thank you both for being on its rainmaking time and giving your time and attention to these subjects. I think it's really important. 
And I'm sorry you had to go through the attacks on your person, Don, but I know that what you're putting forth is really, really important and more of the world needs to know about it. Thank you again, Gordon, as well. Thank you. You're welcome. It's rainmaking time. (laughs) 